Welcome to the Buddha Sasana podcast. This talk was given by Bhikkhu Chintita in Chisago City, Minnesota. Last week we talked about suffering and the human condition. Much more can be said about this and will be said in future talks. For a modern perspective on the human condition, but one that is remarkably consistent with the Buddha's, I would suggest listeners might read about current research in evolutionary psychology. Robert Wright's The Moral Animal is a readable account. But today I want to talk about what the Buddha proposed to do about the human condition. The Standard Chain of Dependent Co-Arising We've seen that dependent co-arising occurs in various contexts. However, most often this term is used to refer to a specific causal chain, which we'll refer to as the standard chain or the 12 links of dependent co-arising when we need to be clear. The standard chain runs as follows. Ignorance gives rise to formations. Formations gives rise to consciousness. Consciousness gives rise to name and form. Name and form gives rise to the sixfold sphere. The sixfold sphere gives rise to contact. Contact gives rise to feeling. Feeling gives rise to craving. Craving gives rise to attachment. Attachment gives rise to becoming. Becoming gives rise to birth, and birth gives rise to this mass of suffering. This particular chain winds its way through the center of Buddhist psychology in which it exposes the arising step-by-step of the near-universal pathology that characterizes the human condition. Occurring with sometimes more or fewer links, its most common variant In the suttas are the 12 links cited here. The chain not only describes the arising of the human pathology, but also what we do about it. Our practice is directed at weakening or breaking its various problematic links until the entire chain ceases to function. How do we do that? Each link ceases in exactly the same way suffering ceases in the Four Noble Truths, through the practice of the Noble Eightfold Path. The path is a kind of universal elixir for all that ails us. Each conditional relation can be expanded by applying the Four Truths formula. For instance, applying it to craving gives us craving, which is to be understood, the origin of craving, which is feeling, and which is to be abandoned, the cessation of craving, which is the cessation of feeling, and which is to be realized, the path to the cessation of craving, which is right view, 
right intention, right action, and so on, which is to be developed. The path as the cure-all for all that ails us serves to weaken and finally break down the standard chain. In fact, the various factors of the path tend to have some specialization in this regard. For instance, the ethics group, with the support of right intention and right effort, tends to weaken craving, the weakest link in the chain. As craving weakens, so do subsequent factors. The concentration group tends to weaken ignorance and formations, which, in the end, results in the utter breakdown of the entire chain. The chain of dependent co-arising is deceptively simple when we actually understand the various factors involved, each of which the Buddha describes in many suttas. We find that their dynamics is quite complex with many branches, loops, and new instantiations of the chain, conditioned by which the illusory sense of self in all of its contingent complexity emerges. The Buddha, in describing this chain, presented us with a most profound model of the common dysfunctional mind. Because of its complexity, I'll devote separate talks to exploring this particular chain. The chain of dependent co-arising will be easier to grasp by the time we come back to it. Maturation of Right View through practice based on right view, a deeper understanding will emerge with time acquired through hands-on experience. This deeper knowledge, also known as wisdom, lies for the most part beyond the limits of conceptual understanding and will unfold with the experience of practice. Consider that most of the knowledge a master potter possesses has come from actually working with the clay and is found in his fingers, not in his head. Or consider the knowledge we put to use in riding a bicycle, for which we are initially told, to go forward, turn the pedals in that direction, to turn right, move the handlebars in this direction, but then for which we learn to maintain our balance and so on, inexplicably by feel that is, through experience rather than through thinking about it. Buddhist practice is also like this. The role of right view may fade as intimacy grows with the domain it covers to be replaced or supplemented by a feel for the workings of the mind. This is a deeper wisdom that develops by the end of the path, not at the beginning. Beyond common contemplation and introspection, the final steps of the path, mindfulness and concentration, ultimately play a crucial role in internalizing right view. The result is to see things as they really are. Once we see things as they really are and see how we create our own suffering, we begin to drop our attachments like hot fritters, which leads to our liberation. In fact, one sutta presents this within a non-standard chain of dependent co-arising as follows. Concentration, Concentration leads to knowledge and vision 
of things as they really are. Knowledge and vision of things as they really are leads to disenchantment. Disenchantment leads to dispassion, and dispassion leads to liberation. In the last talks in this series, we'll explain this process in more detail. Right intention. Right intention, the remaining factor of the Noble Eightfold Path, is also sometimes translated as right resolve or right thought. If right view is the map, right intention is the compass that keeps us headed in the right direction. A potter in crafting a bowl not only needs to know about clay, glaze, and the potter's wheel, he also needs to have an idea of what he hopes to produce. This is his right intention. For the potter, right intention might be to make a bowl of exquisite elegance and beauty, and at the same time of practical functionality. For the Buddhist, right intention is to fashion a character of highest virtue, one that embodies three qualities, renunciation, kindness, and harmlessness. And what is right intention? Being intent on renunciation, on freedom from ill will, on harmlessness. This is called right intention. These three factors are the motivating principles of purity, generosity, and harmlessness, respectively, that constitute the three systems of ethics that we've already discussed in the series of talks I gave on the Buddhist life. These factors also present the three classes of wholesome or skillful thoughts recognized by the Buddha to be in a passage also presented in that series of talks. These are all ethical values that will have been internalized through diligent practice of the gradual instruction. Right intention is a commitment to wholesome intentions and thereby meritorious deeds. Renunciation, kindness, and harmlessness are not, for common people, an obvious set of qualities around which to orient their lives. Many might think that the perfected character is wealthy, attractive, popular, fun-loving, sporty, and ever-young, and, oh, enlightened. Others might have come to Buddhist practice because of inner pain, so their intention is simply to fix themselves and suffer less. Buddhism might not make us sporty, but it'll ease our suffering as a consequence of pursuing right intention. Renunciation, in particular, runs counter to our cultural norms. At some point in any culture, but particularly in a consumer culture like ours, yet the whole path is a matter of renunciation, for progress on the path entails repeatedly letting go of what we cling to. At the material level, renunciation is to live simply with a small personal footprint. At the mental level, it is to hold what we possess lightly, not to be needy, but rather to be easily contented. The steps of disenchantment and dispassion mentioned a moment ago 
as essential to liberation are the endpoints of renunciation. Liberation is awakening. Keep in mind the following point. Liberation in Buddhism is not to get what we want, but rather not to want. Nonetheless, renunciation should be implemented in a balanced way with deliberation rather than with unyielding discipline. With appropriate attention, it tends to come naturally, much like children outgrowing toys, as we realize increasingly the spiritual cost of clinging to things. Renunciation is also the greater part of generosity. Overall, the compass of right intention keeps our mind oriented consistently in the direction of virtue. This becomes our constant intention, our resolve, our aspiration as we tread the path. The practice of wisdom. Your primary task in practicing right view is to acquire, generally over a long period of time, a conceptual understanding of the Dhamma. Your second task, which overlaps with the first, is to reassess and confirm what you have learned in your own experience as you practice the remaining factors of the path. You can satisfy the first task by listening to the wise expound the Dhamma, by reading books on the Dhamma, by considering what is thereby learned, by asking questions about what is uncertain, and so on. Endowed with these six qualities, a person is capable of alighting on the lawfulness, the rightness of skillful mental qualities, even while listening to the true Dhamma. Which six? When the Dhamma and Vinaya, declared by the Tathagata, is being taught, he listens well, gives ear, applies his mind to gnosis, rejects what is worthless, grabs hold of what is worthwhile, and is endowed with the patience to conform with the teaching. In the beginning, many Buddhist teachings will be obscure and complex and therefore not immediately verifiable in your own experience. Although verification in your own experience is the point, and blind faith is entirely beside the point, it is important from the beginning that you be ready to accept Buddhist teachings with an open heart and mind, at least provisionally as working assumptions. This is the function of refuge in the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha, the trust we learned about in earlier talks. Too much initial skepticism will leave you with no starting point for your practice. The need for immediate certainty is as pointless as refusing to begin a book until you know for certain that you will find something edifying or entertaining between its covers. There is a wealth of dharmic textual material available for study. A modicum has been provided here to get started, but be aware that the Dharma comes alive with practice. The Dharma is inert if it remains in the head. A would-be potter does not read pottery for dummies then claim to be a potter. A would-be chef does not read the joy of cooking then claim to be a cook. 
A would-be explorer does not sit around reading National Geographic, then claim great adventures. A would-be follower of the Buddhist path does not listen to these talks, then claim to be a stream enterer. Rather, you need to feel the clay between your fingers, to whip the eggs, to get chased by overwrought natives, to become intimate with suffering and craving, and the rest in your own experience. Practice is very much an introspective project developed from its own perspective in each of the steps of the Noble Eightfold Path. But beginning with right view, you can at least begin to identify the various factors and their conditions or origins in your own experience. Fulfilling right intention is somewhat different from fulfilling right view. Right intention highlights three fundamental values whose understanding will have begun upon entering a Buddhist life, but will be unquestioned as foundational for those fully engaged in the Buddhist path, even if they are not yet always consistently practiced. This requires that the benefits of renunciation, kindness, and harmlessness, both to the world at large and to your personal development, have been examined, verified, re-verified, in your personal practice experience. Recall the discussion of the dangers of sensual passion and the advantages of renunciation in earlier talks, the merits of kindness and the role of harmlessness. The practices described in those talks will have reached a high level of success by the time these three values have become foundational to the Buddhist path. With this, we end our discussion of the wisdom group. Actually, we will make a more detailed pass after we talk about virtue and mental cultivation in the coming talks.